When Jesus was on earth performing miracles, there were multitudes that accompanied him everywhere. The Bible says on one occasion he fed 5,000 people. Bible scholars tell us that if women and children are included, the number would be closer to 25,000. When Jesus was on earth and healed the sick, there were multitudes who came. The Scripture says, And great multitudes came to Him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others, and they laid them down at His feet, and He healed them. So when Jesus was on earth performing miracles, the multitudes surrounded Him. But as He came closer and closer to the cross, the multitude began to disperse, and in fact, there was only one disciple that went all the way to the cross with Jesus, and that was John. Today we look at the last hours of Jesus' life. You know that he traveled to the cross by the Via Dolorosa, which means way of suffering. Today there are nine stations on the Via Dolorosa, stations depicting important events that took place as Jesus went to the cross. As we look at the last hours of his life, I want to throw, focus on three events, three consequential events. So take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19, beginning in verse number 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The first stop for us today and for Jesus was that of Gethsemane. When we take a group to Israel, we always go to Gethsemane. It is a wonderful place to go and pray. And so we scatter around the old olive trees that are there. We spend some time in prayer. Some of those trees are more than 2,000 years old, meaning that they were there when Jesus was there. Though it is a wonderful experience for us, it was a place of agony for Jesus. You see, Gethsemane means oil press, literally. And in ancient days, there was an olive press there. And they would press the olives into oil. And it was a place of intense pressure for Jesus. So when he went to Gethsemane, it was a place where he was pressed. It was a place of agony. There was the agony of emotion. Mark wrote in chapter 14, verse 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. Hebert says the word distress means a feeling of terrified surprise. Now, think of that. 
a feeling of terrified surprise. You see, Jesus knew that he was facing his impending death on the cross. But when the shadow of the cross fell across him, the terror was greater than he had anticipated. And so the Bible says that he was distressed. Mark also says that he was troubled. And the word trouble literally means a feeling of unfamiliarity, a feeling of not being at home, confused and restless. So when Jesus went to Gethsemane, the Bible says that as he was there, that he was distressed, that he was troubled, that he simply did not feel at home. Have you had those feelings? When you find yourself somewhere and you just don't feel right, a feeling of not being at home, not comfortable. That's what the word means. The Bible says that he was grieved. Mark continues, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The, the Scripture says that as Jesus was in Gethsemane, that he was grieved deeply and deeply sad. Why was that? I think there were a couple of contributors, a couple of things that contributed to the feelings that he had. One is that he who never knew sin would become sin. And folks, that's what the cross is all about. The Bible says that when Jesus died, that all of my sin was placed on him. Think of all the sin of the world. Think of all the sin in your own life. All the sin we have committed. And so Jesus, who had never sinned, who never knew sin, would now become sin on the cross. And he was grieved. Something else I think that contributed to it is, for the first time, he would be separated from the Father. That's what it was when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, God is holy and cannot look on sin, and Jesus took all of my sin upon himself. And so the Bible says that God then turned his face, or that's what we, that's what we understand, that God turned his face from his son because he had become sin. And so Jesus was grieved. He had never sinned. He would become sin. He had never been separated from the Father, and now he would be separated from the Father. He had two great needs at this time. One... Was a t he, need, he needed communication with the Father. And I know that you've had those times in your life when you are facing such a struggle. You're facing a time in your life when more than anything else, your heart is crying out that I need this time of communication with God. I just need to be with Him. And that was one of the things that Jesus needed at that time, communication with the Father and the companionship of his friends. And so the Bible says that he took his inner circle there. We look at his prayer, it was intense. The Scripture says in Mark 14, 35, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. When the Bible says that he fell to the ground, that is an imperfect verb, which means continual action. 
And so the picture that we have there is Jesus was praying, that he was kneeling before the Father, and as he prayed, his heart was heavy, and he would raise himself up, and because of the burden of man's sin, because of the burden of sin on his own life, the Bible says that it would crush him back down to the earth, and he would push himself back up, and it would crush him back down to the earth. That's what the verb that is used there means. And it says, and he began to pray. That also is imperfect, which means that he was continuously praying during this time. This wasn't just a prayer that he shot up to the Father. This was a continuous prayer as he prayed there in the garden. The prayer was divided into two parts. First of all, there was exploration, as he said, is there some other way for man to be saved other than my death on the cross? That is discussed today. Isn't there another way for man to be saved? And there are those who conclude, well, certainly if you're a good person, that means that you will be saved. That is sufficient. If you belong to a church, then that is sufficient for salvation. If you've been baptized, that is sufficient for salvation. If you pay your tithe, that is sufficient for salvation. If, if you are tolerant of other people, that is sufficient for, others, uh, for salvation. See, that's what Jesus was asking in Gethsemane. Isn't there some other way for man to be saved? And he concluded, no, there was not. And so there is a time of exploration and then this resignation as he comes to the place to cry out, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he resigned himself to being the sacrifice for man. Is there another way of salvation? No. Then it is not what... I will, but what thou wilt. You see, he understood the struggle of the hour. He said, the hour has come. This hour was predestined. It was promised that God was going to send a Messiah who would provide salvation for mankind. And now it's going to be fulfilled. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane was all about. He struggled in prayer and yielded to the Father's will. The second stop is at Golgotha, verse number 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. The final steps of his journey began with a trial. There were three basic charges brought against Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, verse number 2, the Scripture says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Three charges. They said, first of all, that he was misleading the nation. Probably that is in, in reference to uh, uh, inciting insurrection against the government, that he is trying to stir up a rebellion. That was one of the charges brought against Jesus. They go on to say that he also taught that they were not to pay taxes. That wasn't true, and easily refuted. In fact, they could go back to where Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. He did not say that they were not to pay taxes. Thirdly, they said that he claims to be a king. 
the reference here or the insinuation there is that if Jesus were claiming to be a king, that means then that loyalty belonged to him and therefore not to Caesar. So there were three charges brought against Jesus. He stood before a corrupt court. The event took place at night, which was illegal. Albert Barnes wrote, Peter's last denial was probably not far from three o'clock or near the break of day. As soon as it was light, the Jews consulted together for the purpose of taking his life. And so it was held at night. He was assumed to be guilty, not innocent. They hired false witnesses to speak against him, and they did. And they allowed no defense. Then sentence was pronounced. You remember Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate, the Bible says, thoroughly interrogated Jesus, but concluded that Jesus had done nothing wrong. The people kept crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, being the politician that he was, did not want to offend the crowd. And so his response was then to go through the Jewish washing ceremony. They brought the water. He would dip his hands in the water, hold the hands up and let the water run off his elbows. And he turned his hands to the people to say, you see that his blood is not on my hands. Dip again, lift them up towards himself to say, you see that his blood, I see that his blood is not on my hands. And then he acquiesced. Do with him as you please. I've examined him. He has done nothing that is worthy of death, but do with him as you please. Customarily, charges were hung around the neck of a criminal, and then they were attached to the cross. The Bible says the charges were written in three languages in verse number 20. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Understand that Hebrew was the language of religion. Greek was the language of philosophy. And Latin was the language of government. It's highly symbolic that these were, the charges were written in three languages because it means there was universal condemnation of Jesus. He was condemned by religion. It was written in Hebrew. He was condemned by philosophy. It was written in Greek. He was condemned by the government. It was written in Latin. So when Jesus had the charges attached to the cross, there was universal condemnation of him. Religion, philosophy, and government. And yet in the face of that condemnation, he expressed universal love for all mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the world condemned Jesus, and Jesus loved the world. And he offered salvation to all who would come to him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus died on the cross, taking our sins upon himself. And the Scripture says that he offers to us forgiveness and salvation, no matter what we've done. From the cross, his will was probated. 
The robe went to the soldiers in verse 23. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. There were four soldiers and five articles of clothing. So each soldier took one piece of clothing. There was a fifth piece that was left, his robe, and rather than tear it, they cast lots for it. So from the cross, the soldiers received his robe. His mother was bequeathed to John, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. I'm always touched by that particular verse of Scripture that if Jesus was dying, he took care of his mom. As he was dying and suffering on the cross, he was concerned about the future of his mother. And so he said, John, take care of mom. Mom, this is your son. From the cross, he gave his spirit to God in verse number 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus released his spirit. He released his spirit to the Father there from the cross. And he gave his body to Joseph, verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Had Joseph not claimed the body of Jesus, in all likelihood, it would have been thrown on the dump there in Gehenna. Because that's what they did with bodies. If there was no one to bury them, then they put them there on the dump and they burned them. And so there was a constant burning that was taking place in Gehenna. Joseph received his body. And the Savior was crucified at Golgotha. Third stop is at grace. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, it is through his suffering and his sacrifice that we are given grace. Through his death, our pardon has been purchased. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. Our pardon is complete meaning that we have been justified. Paul wrote in Romans 3:24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, justified. That means that we have been legally declared just before God. It is a legal term. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, I am declared legally to be just before God. I talk with people sometimes, and if you ask them about eternal life, about heaven and so forth, they respond, well, I hope I'm going. Folks, I, I don't hope I'm going. If the Bible is true, I'm going. Not because I deserve to, 
but because when I invited Jesus Christ into my heart, I put faith in Him. The Bible says I was justified. That means legally speaking, I am justified before God. So, because of Jesus' death, the Bible says that I am justified. It says that I am sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the word sanctified speaks of an event and also a process. What is sanctification? When I trusted Jesus Christ, I was justified. Now then, I am also sanctified. Sanctification means that I have been taken out of the world and placed in Christ. And then God begins to work in my life. The Holy Spirit begins to work in my life, pointing out sins in my life that I am growing into the likeness of Jesus. That is sanctification. Sanctification means that when I am saved, I am placed in the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit begins to work in my life, conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. So I have been justified by His death, I have been sanctified by His death, and I have been glorified by His death. Paul wrote in Romans 8.30, Whom he justified, these he also glorified. So one day I'm going to heaven. Are you going to heaven? See, that's what Jesus provided at the cross. He provided pardon for us at the cross. Through His sacrifice at the cross, the Bible says that if we put our faith in Him, we are justified, we are sanctified, and we are glorified. I especially like that when it says in, in, uh, in Romans 8, Whom He justified, these He glorified. That's in past tense, not in future tense. The Lord has such confidence in what He is doing, it's already been done as far as He's concerned. I am glorified. I am going to be in heaven someday. So through His death, He purchased our pardon. Through His death, He purchased our peace. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That I have peace with God. What does that mean? Well, it means I lose my fear of God. Now, I, I know that we are talking about definition at that point, but it means I'm not scared of God. You know, I, I, I reverence God. Fear means that, to reverence God, and I am to be reverent towards God. I am to reverence God, but I'm not scared of God. Why not? Well, because He's my Father. See, God is my heavenly Father. And I, I reverence my earthly father, but I wasn't scared of him. He was my father. And God is my heavenly father. It means then that I lose my fear of death. Paul said, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So when Paul was speaking about death there, he said, my preference is that I am away from the body that I might be home with the Lord. Well, folks, if, if dying means that I'm going home, then I ought not be fearful of death. If that's what it is. I'm not fearful of going home. Well, on occasion I am whenever I do something wrong and, or aggravate Linda somehow. I'm a little apprehensive about going home, but, but not generally. But See, the Bible says when I die, I'm going home. 
I'm just going home. Therefore, I lose my fear of death because when I die, I go home. It also means that I lose my fear of doubt. When President Eisenhower had come to the place that he was about to die, he called for Billy Graham. He wanted to talk with him. And he said, Billy, I want you to tell me again how I can be sure my sins were forgiven and that I'm going to heaven. And Billy went through it with him again, and he said, Mr. President, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you trust Him, you commit your life to Him according to God's Word, then you are saved. And he shared with him again. The President said, Thank you. I'm ready. See, that, that's what the Lord provided for us at the cross. He provided pardon for us. He paid for my sins. Therefore, He offers to me the gift of eternal life. He paid for it. He can give it away. He provided peace for me. Because of what Jesus did, then I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear doubt. I don't have to fear God. Because He satisfied the debt of my sin there at the cross. At Golgotha that day, there were three crosses. And there was a cross of rebellion. You know that on either side of Jesus there were two thieves who died. One of them rebelled against the Lord and said to Jesus, You, you say that you are the Savior. You say that you are the Messiah. Well, then save yourself and save us too. But he died in rebellion. The thief on the other side is on the cross of redemption. At the beginning, he also joined in mocking Jesus. But then you recall that he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. And so he was, he was forgiven, became a child of God. He was redeemed. Jesus was on the cross of reconciliation. He died to pay for our sin to reconcile us to the Father that we might be saved. Max Lucado wrote, God sat in silence while the sins of the world were placed on His Son. Was it right? No. Was it fair? No. Was it love? Yes. In a world of injustice, God once and for all tipped the scales in the favor of hope. That's what the cross is about. Jesus paid for your sins that he might give to you eternal life. My friend, do you know Jesus today? You might ask the question, is there another way of salvation? If I join the church, does that mean I'm saved? If I'm baptized, go through catechism, does that mean I'm saved? No. See, that was the struggle of Jesus in Gethsemane. Is there another way? And he said, no, there is not. And so he died. Have you ever committed your life to Christ? If you have not, I invite you to today. That you commit your life to Jesus and let Him forgive you. Our gracious Father in God, we come thanking You for the sacrifice You made. Lord, I come to You lifting up this congregation knowing that some have never come to know You.
And I pray, Lord, that today they might. Lord, I pray that you'll bless this invitation time in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we will stand and the choir will sing. And this is an invitation extended to you. If you would like to commit your life to Christ today, come. The staff will be here to pray with you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We invite you to come. Stand with me, please, as we stand and they sing, You Come, I'll greet you as you do.